right, old geek. What's up, brother? Hey, man. Good to see you. Been Good a while. Yeah, it's been, it's been, uh, we took last month off. Yeah. We haven't taken, I think that's the only second month we've taken off. I think whatever, so. Two man. years. Yep. So, you know, we've earned it. You've earned yeah. it. I don't take time off. You take time off. You, you've earned it way more than me. You're on these <laughs> things like nonstop. <laughs> well, I'm psyched for the show today and even more psyched to have our special guest, our very, very good friend, Vince Horn. Vince, what's up, buddy? Hey, good to be here. Yeah, it's awesome to have you here. Yeah. We've uh, Ryan and I have actually been talking, geez, pretty much since we started the show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when was that, Ryan? Like two years ago. We're like, yeah. we got to get, we got to get Vincent here with us. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, Finally worked out. Yeah, man. I'm glad. I'm glad great, you joined. Great so to be here. We've got, uh, we've got the Buddhist geeks in the house. Well, yeah, crucially in uniform. I wasn't informed. I'm, I'm the integral <laughs> geek, I guess. That works for me. We're accepting yeah. memberships and we have Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> no, so this is going to be a fun show. Vince, the reason why we wanted to have you on was because, um, well, let's just kind of take it from the top. Ryan, you sent me a message about two months ago, letting me know that you actually took a, a fairly big step in your ongoing. Uh, Vince did it too. We did it together. Oh, you guys did it together. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that big event was you guys took the Bodhisattva vow. Indeed. Yes. That's... The, or, or, or the Bodhisattva vow, depending the on how you yeah. look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Since we are a couple of nah, bros, yeah. enlightened bros. <laughs> bros. <laughs> yes, no, I love it. And, you know, I figured, uh, that, you know, let's wrap an episode around this because it's such a fascinating topic, I think, um, from so many angles, both in terms of like, personally what 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 drove you guys to take the vow in the first place but also just kind of generally um how this vow is sort of enacted and expressed at multiple altitudes you guys i'm assuming are coming from a vaguely teal or turquoise altitude on a good, <laughs> on a good day maybe um so i'm going to be really curious to hear you guys talk about just how that how that you know changes things if it changes things you know ken often talks about how you know when it comes to uh, the non-dual awakened experience, well, there's sort of two sides of the ledger there. There's a, there's an emptiness side of the street, which by its very definition doesn't change, doesn't move. It's the same emptiness now that was there ever since before the Big Bang. And yet the other sort of side of the equation, if we can call it equation, because this is non-duality and you can't talk about it without sounding like Yoda the entire time. But <laughs> if you can uh, excuse my dualism here, on the other side of the street is the world of form that is constantly changing constantly evolving in all four quadrants. And so I'm going to be really curious to hear from you guys, um, you know, how this Bodhisattva vow lands for you, the, the, the sort of meaning that it's generating for you, um, and really what makes it a little bit different taking this vow here in the 21st century, as opposed to, you know, let's say like 14th century Japan or something like that. Um, so this is going to be a, a, a rich and fun conversation and an important one too, because I think that this, you know, connects us to a sense of, you know, let's just ca call it divine purpose. You know, I think that it, one of the common themes that we talk about in shows like this is how, you know, we are really swimming in sort of the shallow waters of a epistemic crisis of meaning, right? Meaning has been in such short supply for so many people. And that creates this sort of cynical malaise that I think um, all of us, awakened or otherwise, participate with in some way. 
right? We're surrounded by this malaise one way or the other. And, you know, to me, you guys taking the Bodhisattva vow, it feels to me anyway, that you have sort of decided to bend your life, to bend your very core around a premise and a principle that generates an incredible amount of meaning, both for you guys personally, as well as in the world at large. Um, so that's sort of a, a buffet line of, of, of topics that we can get into uh, in this discussion. But, you know, let's start, Ryan, I want to let's let's start with you. I want to I want to hear from you um, what compelled you um, to take the Bodhisattva vow in the first place. And then, Vince, I'd like you to answer that question as well. So what, what was what sort of uh, was the process that led you to making this this decision? Well, I mean, for me, and I imagine this is similar for Vince, uh, that like, I mean, we've been doing this shtick for quite a while in, in the Buddha, in Buddhism and meditation and even, in, you know, teaching. Um, so partly it was just like, for me, I've long wanted to do it formally in a formal context with a, you know, great teacher and good community and just formalize it. I mean, there's something powerful to the ritual, you know, and to ritual itself, which is also a kind of interesting thing tied to meaning that we can get into of like the importance of ritual and, you know, where that's gone in today's kind of postmodern era. But um, so I was actually thinking earlier about like the evolution of that. So like, I already felt like I was committing myself to the Bodhisattva vow. So this was like going through a formal ritual um, to, you know, concretize it, to juice it up, you know? And, um, and I was thinking about how vows have felt to me over time and thinking about a couple of models we use at Buddhist Geeks phases of insight and waves of wakefulness and, and then also thinking about some integral framework like egocentric, sociocentric, world-centric, and so on. But, you know, there's like phases of my path where it was like very characterized by seeking and efforting. And that kind of vow was like, let's fucking do it. Like, keep going. You know, that was just like, I gotta, gotta get there. And it's really powerful. That kind of vow has got juice to it, you know, it, but it's kind of more narrow, you know, mm. in, in, the, in the feel to it. <laughs> I thought also, you know, about hitting dark night territory and that was like about like i'll do anything you'd want <laughs> just make it stop <laughs> just make it stop literally i remember that i remember that i remember even being able to witness it a little bit and be able but also i'm like yep this is my reality like i i'll do anything you know uh i think they call that the the, the bargaining stage yeah i went through all of those i went through all of them <laughs> hard and that reflected you know in the vow at that time you know and uh, it was interesting this time around. This is just my short thing. There's a lot of things I could say about all this, but I just keep it short. Um, part of it, like, it was really interesting. I'm still reflecting on it, but part of it just felt like reporting for duty. You know, this is what it's like, like, I don't know. I don't know how to characterize that as. I'm mean, just like, that's how it felt like. Here I am. Let's, let's do this thing. Let's, let's go, you know, versus like, had I done it 10 years ago or 15 years ago in a formal way, it would have been like, there'd have been like a special, like an extra specialness that I would have put onto it like on my own side, you know? Um, and so that was really interesting, actually, like even now sitting with it, like I'm just feeling into it, like what's there for me? Like, is there some of that's probably maturity, but is it some of it like my own funk or something? Like what's, what's going on there that it feels that different compared to had I taken it some other time? So all I would say is like, I think the context of, of our life and the phases impact how a vow feels, you know, that's what it seems like to me. So that's all I'll say for my short. <laughs> Vince, I'd like I'd like to hear it from uh, from your your end. Yeah, I, I would echo a lot of what um, Brian just said, um, and maybe highlight a few things that come to mind here, which is 
um, one, I, I, I took the vow because I, I'm, uh, have a tendency toward narcissism and self-absorption. And so having kids, uh, has been, uh, you know, <laughs> tremendously useful in that respect. Uh, and this vow to a uh, teaching, being there for others, uh, basically any way I can sort of decenter myself, uh, from, from my life seems to work out well, uh, historically. So just continuing along with that. Um, also I, I decided to take it now, if, although I've been practicing formally in the Buddhist tradition since 2002, almost 20, 20 years, I, I was very anti-ritual the first decade or so of my practice. I was very rational in terms of how I oriented toward things and kind of poo-pooing the, a lot of the mystical, uh, not the phenomenology of mysticism, but the, the ritual of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think I've just kind of come through that and let that, you know, die down a bit and appreciate as, as Ryan said, the, um, the power of ritual to, to communicate at levels of mind that are, um, in some ways deeper than, than the rational mind, um, more mythical. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was that too, just kind of not feeling that resistance. Um, and I also felt a connection with the community that we did it with, uh, mm -hmm. which was Dharma, Dharma ocean, uh, Reggie Ray, um, uh, as the founding teacher there. Um, I had, you know, seen Reggie at Naropa university when I was a student there with Ryan and, um, felt a real connection to Chagyam Trungpa, his teacher, the Tibetan teacher who founded Naropa. Um, and so it just, it felt like a nice timing of like, hey, we're doing this Bodhisattva vow. The timing feels right. I, I'm self-absorbed and narcissistic, so I can always use the, you know, the, the reminder that it's good to not just be focused on, on my wants and needs. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so uh, it felt really, uh, it felt like a really good time. And then the, here's the other thing to kind of tie in, uh, um, another integral friend, Stuart Davis, I had been mm -hmm. doing some, some actually some past life regression work with him. And I won't get into the details of like, this was my past life, etc. But needless to say, having experiences with that, um, with Stuart, I, it, it, it felt like, oh, yeah, this is a vow I somehow have already taken, or I, I took eons ago at some level, like at the, at a subtle level. And it just feels like my home, like, like Ryan said, reporting for duty, like, oh yeah, this again, like time to, time to reaffirm this commitment and some level. It felt a little like that. Um, yeah. So, so sort of like something was sort of already, already there, already formed somewhere in the center of you. And this was kind of maybe yeah. implicit, explicit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that. Well, and I got to say, it's a tremendously benevolent move for both of you to <laughs> bow to delay your own, you know, uh, full enlightenment until schlubs like me can make it through the gateless gate. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I never. Other, other schlubs in our, in, our, in our audience appreciate it. <laughs> Meaning like we're never going to get there. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I think the point, right? And we're okay with that. Yeah. No, and, yeah. and Vince, I'm really, I'm leaning into what you're talking about, about sort of, you know, you're joking about this sort of, uh, th this narcissism <laughs> that, yeah. that you're, you know, encountering. And it's funny because- Part Ken joking. And I, <laughs> Ken, Ken, well, sort of half joking, right? Yeah, Ken, yeah. Ken and I just did a discussion about, um, you know, basically uh, embodying 
uh, conscious love in all sort of hmm. paths of our lives and waking up, growing up, opening up, cleaning up, showing up, et cetera. Hmm. And one of the things that we talked about um, in the cleaning up section was actually exactly that was, was enlightenment as a sort of divine narcissism, which is actually how Ken described the awakening process all the way back in the spectrum of consciousness. He's basically hmm. saying, you know, enlightenment allows you to kind of basically trade in this very small, narrow narcissism for a much more fulfilling and wider and <laughs> better narcissism, um, which is, you know, I think is kind of a funny frame. But what I what I really like about the Bodhisattva vow is it does, I think, exactly what you're kind of pointing to, which is it takes all of this sort of self-gazing, the self-awareness, all these, these awakening practices that, you know, we're really doing more or less on our own. I mean, we're plugged into a community, but you know, this is, this is our practice. This is our awakening. This is, you know what I mean? We're, we're, we're doing our work in order to, you know, get from here to here, however you want to conceive that. Bringing in the Bodhisattva vow to me feels like you're sort of, you're bursting that bubble and you're allowing all of this to spill out of you into the rest of the world. It's bringing basically a really strong Spirit, second person component to that awakening process. And there's a piece of that that actually feels almost inevitable. Like, like no matter what lineage you're plugged into, there's some version of this waiting there for you. There's some version of a Bodhisattva vow that sits really at the core of all these traditions. Because if you're just doing it for your own sort of psycho-spiritual masturbation. I mean, ultimately, what's what's the point? How much goodness are you really helping to sort of facilitate and to bring into the world? Um, so I, I, I'm really kind of keyed in on that, on that point, on how it takes these wisdoms that are, you know, hard won in a lot of ways. I mean, you have to, you've got to, you know, sit, you got to get your 10,000 hours on your own in order for those wisdoms to really emerge. But once they do emerge, you're, you're almost liberating them by delivering them, not to just like the people in your direct vicinity, but like to manifestation itself. I mean, again, you're vowing to like not pass through the gate until everyone else does. And what, uh, I mean, talk about selfless service, right? I mean, it feels like that this is just something that that um, sits at the very, very core of you and actually helps focus and refine all of your engagements with other people and other groups in the world. Um, and I think that's fascinating. I think it's beautiful. And I think it shows this sort of uh, this bursting of the dam of spiritual maturity. <laughs> you jive with so that? I, I, I jive with it in terms of the ideals behind it. I, yeah. it, the actual living reality is obviously doesn't always live up to that. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, let's, let's talk about that. How, ha or has yeah. this, I mean, how has this actually landed in terms of your, your lived reality? Does something feel different after, after taking the vow? No, <laughs> not for me. I still feel like a schlub. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, they, they talk about, you know, whatever tradition there's going to be like, flowery things around it like when you do this like amazing things happen right like yeah. they're, they're, and and that to be fair like in the ritual part like there's power in it i think like vince was saying and so we can say that something is happening by by doing that but as far as like the subjective thing no it wasn't felt like you know just turned into an avenger or something like that <laughs> you know um i think actually what mostly happens for me like it's especially since then is just sitting with questions like what does this mean right now 
Like mm. w- what's what's being asked of me right now? And I don't know. Like part of that part of that is like, I don't know. Like I'm and my response wouldn't have been always, I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I know what's needed right now. And then I'm I'm trying to do that. But now it's just sort of like looking around. Okay. Kind of that, that's why I like reporting for duty. It's like, what what do I need to do? What am I not seeing? Et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So that's more of what triggered it for me, uh, is more of that thing of like, I don't know. <laughs> Reminds me of something that, you know, that um, we, we quote Vince often with this, but it kind of takes you <laughs> to a place of what is mine, right? Just as I'm doing my practice, what is mine? What is me? What is not me? What is actually mine here? And it actually brings you to what is mine to do, yeah. which again, feels like a fruition of, of, of that path. Yeah, I think that's really true. I would say like, you know, in terms of like the maturing aspect. And so like, you know, built into the Bodhisattva Valve, we're really looking at it, it does have this feeling of like, forever so it's like might as well like chill on any like ideals that we're gonna like start pumping up our ego with you know just like okay slow and steady is probably the pace for a lot of life you know Stuart's song that's a lot of lifetimes (laughs) so you know um but one of the things i do just check in on like a lot and i mentioned this like uh in teaching and trainings you know to kind of temper things um, like we, you know, the Bodhisattva vow, like part of the vow we have here, I don't know if I should read the whole little thing there to share that, or just, I, I, I kind of made the assumption that everybody listening probably know what the Bodhisattva vow is, but I'm like, oh, maybe not. Um, but you know, like the first line is from now until attaining enlightenment, I vow to work for the welfare of all and like letting that sink in. And like, it, at first it could be like, yeah, let's fucking avenge, you know, like, like I said, we're going to do it. But like, really, it's just kind of like watching the news and i always use my favorite person to think about donald trump and this kind of thing and like when i think about him and see his mug on the tv do i feel that do i feel i want to work for the welfare of donald trump there's some part of me that just goes "Ugh, okay i guess you know like yeah but if i don't then okay that's something to feel into so i don't know just like that tempers the ideas of like really does it include everybody like or do i go i ah, no, i like it for me and for the other people who also practice with me and kind of have the same ideals etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah mm. well it's your mind folks it's one thing to like devote your life to something or to a cause you guys went above and beyond the overachievers that you are and decided i'm gonna devote the infinite regress of lifetimes <laughs> and that's oh. that's a deep commitment yeah what i think real quick for and this i'm quoting you vince that i remember too is like along with like what i just said too we can have some real immature spiritual ideals like where we lose track of integral things like development and what's happening in all the four quadrants of our society and vince i remember you tweeted like when trump got covid and then there was like some people who might have said genuinely and maybe in spiritual ideal way like may he be better. May he be free of suffering. And Vince, I don't know if you kept the, the tweet, but you said, if that's for the benefit of all, then yeah, let it be. <laughs> and so implicitly there's a, but there, yeah. <laughs> but if not, then no. So that just points to things of like, you know, the, the, the ideas that we have about like how our things should be and how our response should be around Bodhisattva Val and stuff like that can go deep, you know? I, so Vince, I don't know. Yeah, Vince, Sorry, respond, respond to that if you like, you know, just just briefly, I just want to mention, I think that that actually brings us into a really great discussion of what's different about this vow at, you know, again, let's just say the amber level, the green level and the turquoise level. Yeah. And it really seems to have, you know, it's, I mean, obviously these different altitudes, these different stages of our own ongoing development 
they they put us in very very different relationship with each other right with yeah with and reality own, we think of each other differently based on sort of what stage we're coming at and i'm sure that that directly informs not just how you sort of hold the vow but how you enact it how you actually you know execute it in real time with real people who are sitting in front of you at any given moment right right yeah yeah no that that feels true to me like i, I don't think I think early Buddhism actually nailed this. They, they, when they talked about right view or wise view in the in the uh, the eightfold path, it, which basically more or less states that you can't separate the view from the awakening. You know, you can't um, ha have some experience independent of the frameworks and the meaning making structures you're seeing through. So I think yeah, enlightenment itself changes uh, as one matures. And um, so too does yeah one's understanding of like what what am I doing with this and how do I integrate um, these meditative attainments and experiences and whatever else into and the long retreat practice in the case of Ryan and I into like just day to day living mm -hmm. and um, you know I, I think f for the longest time I was probably hanging out in the sort of um, the rational individualist you know kind of orange stage of development while I was engaging with these things. And so for me, it was all about the maps and the models. And I didn't give a shit about the Bodhisattva vow exactly <laughs> at the time, but I did, but I think I did care about well, the welfare of others, but I, I conceived of it mostly as material, uh, material welfare, you know, it's like, the, and, and the gross realm is all there is it, more or less was my, my view. Um, so, you know, for me, that's changed a lot as I've, whatever as times passed and ha have had experiences and now i i i question those set of assumptions about the nature of reality that it is just this material plane that we yeah. see and that welfare only happens at this at this level what the tibetan buddhists would call the nirmanakaya you know the 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 body that you're experiencing this waking gross world with so now i i sort of have let my, my metaphysics have loosened <laughs> and <laughs> which is usually a sign I, that you're onto something yeah right? I, hope, I hope so i hope so um <laughs> and you know it's like so you you said earlier it's like we've made this commitment and it's a big commit to make like to me it's like yeah on the gross level we have made this commitment and we went to a ceremony and we did this ritual mm. on a subtle level it feels to me like again this is some part of my uh as Stuart would put it, my long self, you know, this is mm. part of who I am at a deeper level that I can't understand completely based on the causes and conditions of this lifetime. Um, now, I don't like have a detailed idea of how how this works, but I do. Feel, it feels true. So in that sense, it feels like, oh, I'm just aligning this body and mind with the deeper part of me mm. and I'm riding those waves, those mm. currents. You know, mm. and trusting that like this is where this is where things are going. So I'm gonna mm. get on the ride mm. and uh, you mm. know, strap in. That's beautiful. Mm. That's beautiful. You know, one of the things I was talking to um to Ken about a couple of weeks ago, uh, in terms of the bodhisattva vow is is actually sort of looking at both sides of it, sort of the bodhisattva side and and the vow side, which I think is mm. is there's some interesting things to say about that. So, you know, on the bodhisattva side, one of the things we're talking about is, you know, it's 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 by a miracle of awakening, we're able to escape our sort of narrow narcissism 
and find a much deeper identity, a divine narcissism mm. that we call being a bodhisattva. I mean, you know, being a bodhisattva is a particular type of identity that we can take on for ourselves that has, you know, certain qualities that are associated with it can, you know, maybe help us regulate our own behaviors and how we sort of move through the world just by sort of holding on to that, that identity piece. Um, and it is, it's a, it's a, it's a more subtle liberated identity, but it's, it's, it's almost a bar that we create for ourselves that we, you know, expect ourselves to live up to. And that's where the other side of the equation comes in the vow piece. And I think that, you know, the, even the word vow, I think is something that has been somewhat, I don't know, devalued in our culture. I told Ken, mm. my theory is it's because, you know, particularly with Gen X, we grew up with like crazy divorce rates and, you know, things like marriage <laughs> vows or just getting thrown out the window. Like they never meant anything at all. Right. So the vow just sort of has taken on this feeling of like, it's just a fancy promise and you can kind of cross your fingers behind your back if you want to. And, and it's like, well, no, that's not what a vow is, is supposed to be. There's like a strong, uh, you know, almost fairly rigid kind of amber enactment of the word vow that I think is actually really, really important because when you take a vow like this, you're not just making some surface level promise. I mean, you are basically saying, you know, at the very, very core of my being, I found a pivot point, right? And I'm going to bend everything from this point on around that fulcrum, that sort of innermost fulcrum where all of my efforts, all of my, you know, uh, work in the world is hopefully, you know, driving in sort of the same direction. And that's, you know, towards the direction of liberation and love and awakening and so forth. Um, but, you know, really, I think coming to terms with how strong that vow is and how deep you're really supposed to let it kind of run through you, I think can be challenging for people because we don't have a lot of you know, we don't have a lot of uh, comparisons. We don't have a lot of role models when it comes to that sort of, I mean, again, it's one thing to wrap your, your, a single life around a given cause, but to wrap multiple lifetimes around it, Jesus, that takes a whole other level of, of commitment and of realization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot about what Vince has been saying about, you know, rationalism and gross realm and like how much these influence, like how we think of a vow. I was reading through a Wikipedia seeing just what people say about vows and things like that. And a lot of uh, what's written about vows is very religious, like mythological kind of level of uh, religion. And so that makes sense that after a while, people got really turned off by that. You know, if, if kind of evolved beyond that kind of orientation, it's like, why would I do that? That makes no sense. And then talking about a rational orientation, it was interesting in Wikipedia, they, uh, they were differentiating between vow and oath. An oath is something that just somebody witnesses, but a vow is something done with, there's a direct relational uh, connection with somebody else. Often it was a deity. Um, so an oath will be something more of like what a vow feels like, you know, like I commit to doing something. Oh, I witness you saying that. Okay. Like a contractual sort of, you know, gross realm kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then like, how does that keep evolving? But I also think something has to do with like meta rationality and what we think about you know, if we take reality to be mostly gross realm experience and rationality wants to limit it to that kind of thing a lot of times, then it seems like a vow would be limited. But uh, these are questions I'm sitting with, you know. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and I love that. And I love seeing sort of the, um, again, the simultaneity of first, second, and third person when it comes to taking a vow. Because again, you're adopting this, this first person identity of a bodhisattva, which is itself sort of 
you know, we, 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 that identity itself comes from a particular third person metaphysics that you can believe in, or you don't even have to believe in, in order for this identity to emerge. But there's this idea of multiple lifetimes and of awakening process and, and all of that, all of which can be sort of seen in third person. But then, yeah, there's that second person, you know, it feels like, if it, well, it feels like a fulcrum. I mean, it feels like sort of, you know, both the first person and third person find balance on that mm. second person pivot point. Um, which again is sort of, it's, you know, when you're making the vow, I mean, who are you, who are you vowing to? I mean, a vow sort of requires a second person, mm. whether that second person is, you know, some concept of a God or um, an authority who represents that God, or it's a, it's a vow to your own deepest, truest self. However you visualize that there's always this second person component to it that really, I think having that second person creates a sense of accountability right? That just sort of a finger crossed promise doesn't really bring with it. A vow has accountability to it. Mm -hmm. Which means if you don't get me into that gate, (laughs) y'all are screwed. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. How do we get you there, Corey? What is it going to take? (laughs) Uh, uh, Kicking and screaming seems to be the only way anyone's figured out so far. Yeah. Go ahead, Vince. I was I was thinking about your earlier question, Corey, too, about um, how these different altitudes impact the way that one understands the Bodhisattva vow. And I was I was thinking too about the stage conception in Buddhism that um, Ken writes about in um, well at length in the Fourth Turning, um, but th- this idea of four of these different turnings of the wheel of Dharma that there are these different iterations or evolutionary epochs that Buddhism has gone through. Mm -hmm. And the Bodhisattva is an ideal that is most associated with the second turning, the second iteration, Mm -hmm. starting in the second century CE. And before that, the ideal was the Arhat. Um, The Arhat is the perfectly enlightened one, the one who's gone beyond suffering. And like you said, who's discovered this formless being that transcends name and form. And they are kind of abiding in that formless release you know, just chilling in emptiness, essentially. (laughs) And finally narcissistic. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's like, I got mine. So (laughs) (laughs) everything is literally me. So yeah, everything is literally me or not me either way. We're good. (laughs) And, um, you know, to, to, to me, the, 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 what's amazing about the second turning, uh, teachings was this emphasis on, on, on compassion being equally important to wisdom so that you have these two wisdom isn't the most important value that transcends all other values like it's in service also of how of how you are in the world and how you are with others other beings um and 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 this idea of emptiness not as like a lack of self-referentiality uh, or a lack of a center point but rather emptiness as interdependence Myself doesn't arise independently of you all. Mm. That's what emptiness means in the second turning. It doesn't mean like there's no substance here. No, there is. It's just not, it just can't be by itself. Um, and so I love that reconceptualization because it, 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 well, it is non-duality. It is that kind of recognition that like you can't escape this experience because there's nothing but this mm. and it's empty. The good, good thing, <laughs> but um, 
um, to me that that Bodhisattva is the first move. It's the first non-dualistic ideal in that tradition of like, what does it look like if you've really integrated emptiness and form in your experience? Like this is, this is a description of, of what that looks like an ideal really mm. of what that looks like. Mm. And then would you say the third turning sort of, uh, completes that circuit by simply noticing the the scene I was going to let I was going to let I was going to let Ryan talk about the third oh, turning cool. since oh, that's, that's been more of his spiritual home. <laughs> anyone but me should talk about these next turnings. So Ryan, take it away. Buddy. Well, no, actually, I was kind of contemplating like uh, this a little bit, like in that kind of progression, and, and how Ken might have talked about it. But I don't remember that that passage there. I remember thinking like it was interesting, like uh, in Sok Jin, like what refuge looked like, which is tied, I think, into this kind of like progression. And uh, like, of course, you know, the initial refuge, like take refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And like, like, that's the gold standard from the get go. But later you would take refuge in the deities and Dakinis. Like that would be like who you'd say, you want to take refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in deities and Dakinis, like this uh, kaleidoscope of reality, you know, because there's like how many deities and Dakinis. Um yeah, I mean, of course, then you have the thing of like Sogjin and Mahamudra going to like, you know, uh, just saying, just kidding on everything. <laughs> you know, they have all the progression and then and then they then they just counter everything that's come before it and just like basic, I, you know, when we taught when I taught the awareness meditation training, the words that are used so often in, in those texts are like, now that you've exhausted this, like every which way you're trying to look to establish something, a view, a concept, et cetera. Now that you've exhausted it, just now what, you know? Is just trying to point to that, like of the exhausting out of the conceptual mind and of, of, of positioning one with, with any particular form or not form. And uh, it can be kind of maddening because we're always trying to find a place to sit, you know? Um, so, yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of kind of sitting with that one. Vince, do you have a... I mean, for me, what's been recently inspiring about the whole third turning teachings has been, um, well, one, it's the tantric emphasis. Yeah. You know, if like you don't just have to renounce everything to realize this, you also yeah. could embrace form and the fullness of experience and sensual pleasure and, you know, and even even drugs and alcohol could become a vehicle with the right intention for for liberation. Um, that that just kind of concords with my experience a little more of how this path yeah. has been and it's messy too. Um, but there's this idea that if you harness reality fully, like you don't think of anything mm -hmm. as being outside of, yes. of, of, of the, of the realm of skillful means of like things yes. that can awaken, then, um, the, it's possible to, to, to become a Buddha in this very life, like to become a really deeply, a fully awakened being who has mastered skillful means, you know, who's yeah. this freely functioning, awakened superstar, I guess. And, um, I think I, 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 not that I think that's going to happen in this lifetime, mm -hmm. but I, I, I find that somehow now inspiring, uh, and, and I, but even more inspiring, I think of the fourth turning, you know, and, and the, the only word I can think of is like, it's like a meta Safa, you know, someone who has this cognitive capacity to hold perspectives and move between different worldviews and who is kind of like choosing you know, to enter into like the spiral wizard entering into these different uh, ways yeah. of seeing things and, and working for the welfare of all at all quadrants, levels, lines, states, like using that, like much broader, bigger meta view 
to help orient that bodhi, that the activity of bodhi, of of being a bodhisattva. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that I think that's pretty powerful. That's amazing, actually. That's the most interesting thing. It gives you a bigger toolkit, really, in order to sort of operate and intervene in the world. Yeah. Of yeah. For me, it's like the skillful means can get more skillful in a certain yeah. way. Like there's more to that more resolution, you know, uh, from which to pull. Yep. That makes a lot of sense, you know, and again, I think it really does highlight the differences between sort of amber, green and turquoise expressions of this. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I can see how a lot of, you know, for example, green expressions of the Bodhisattva vow are going to be you know, a little bit wishy-washy, a little, you know, Vince, you would have been canceled for your, your Donald Trump comment. And you know what I mean? Cause every, everything sort of is supposed to weigh the same and everything is supposed to be treated the same and everything kind of, you know, let's just find equanimity here, guys. And it's like, well, you know what? We live in a raucous, chaotic fucking world. And some things are honestly more deserving of our uh, compassion, let's just say, than, than others, um, which doesn't say that our compassion doesn't extend out to, you know, meet all things. I think it certainly does. But, you know, there, you, you, you get this sort of, it's like discernment comes back, right? You kind of mm -hmm. get this sense of discernment. You can tell deeper from you know, more shallow, you can tell wider from more narrow, you can tell mm -hmm. higher from lower. And that begins to sort of inform how you move through the world and how you choose to express your compassion at any given moment. Because guess what, you're only still one person chipping away at one little corner of the cosmos, trying <laughs> to, you know, make whatever difference you can as a bodhisattva, and you need the very best tools possible in order to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the ways I see the, um, the green meme or the pluralistic form of bodhisattva it, it, it in Buddhist communities is like it's social just it's the emphasis on social justice mm -hmm. and on addressing these sort of human systems especially that have gone that have gone kind of invisible for a long time mm -hmm. and sort of like oh wait there's these systems and we're embedded mm -hmm. in them mm -hmm. and they're causing a lot of the suffering like yeah suffering is inherent in 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 experience mm -hmm. being a being sentient means you suffer and mm -hmm. like there's all this extra suffering that is sort of being you know created at the systems level and i think the emphasis there is like I, it's like a one-pointed focus on addressing the systemic level Right. But then it, to me, that it misses, it becomes myopic, um, both in that it's only focused on the human and also that it's only focused on primarily on systems, yeah. you know? And so it's like meditation in a way becomes a dirty word to, to a pluralistic <laughs> bodhisattva, I think, because it's like, oh, you're just navel gazing, you know, just this right. sort of solipsistic, solipsistic practice, which I think is often true, like to be fair mm -hmm. to them. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um but that's not all that's not all it can be right mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. right yeah well the other i was thinking when you're describing sort of the third and into the fourth turnings um you know one of the thoughts that came up to me is sort of this reconciliation of let's just call them sort of ascending and descending currents you know ascending current says go sit at a wall for 12 hours a day every day for the next 40 years and tell me what happens and the descending <laughs> current is a little bit more of that tantric you know go fucking have fun and <laughs> you know what i mean and and recognize the fullness of existence alongside mm. the emptiness mm. of, of existence and how mm. that makes it much more well easy to select for in contemporary society because we don't live in a world like we did a thousand years ago where you know 
going and sitting in a cave for 20 years, staring at a wall was actually a reasonable option that, that someone could do with their lives. That's simply not possible. And so if, if you were a dude, yeah, if, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're a dude, um, you know, so it, it feels like this is, you know, these new turnings, which, which obviously makes sense. I mean, the turnings are themselves a response to the ongoing evolutionary emergence within the world of form. We, we, you know, we were able to sort of get it increasingly better as we, as we continue to move forward. And I think the fourth turning, um, if there is one, if that wheel is starting to kind of crack a little bit, I hope it is, um, is, is doing the exact same thing. It's, it's giving people a way to better respond to the challenges and the conditions within the world of form. And, 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 and Vince, I love what you're talking about with sort of that green eye towards social justice, because I, I agree with that. I think one of the things they're really good at is sort of is sort of waving their hands and saying, there's a problem here. I think where they get limited is oftentimes they have sort of a, a lower resolution understanding of what systems are, how they actually work, the type of systemic oppressions that exist, the ones that are you know still being sort of intentionally enforced versus the ones that are more you know, an integral language, let's just say sort of auto-poetically self-reinforcing karmas from previous systems that no longer exist, right? That's one of the biggest challenges I think that the social justice movement is facing right now is they don't know how to make that distinction. And they assume that any of these inertias from previous ways of being that continue to visit us today are therefore the result of some policy that's still in effect today. And I think yes. that, you know, a, a more integral sort of understanding helps us kind of tease these apart. Well, in zone eight, most of those, there's still a few, we're ironing out some wrinkles, but, you know, most of the explicitly discriminatory laws in zone eight have been sort of, you know, they've evolved, they've been changed, they've been taken off the books, or, you know, it's hard to find a law these days that says treat these people differently than those people. That's kind of gone by history's wayside. And yet the karmas and the consequences and the inertias from the previous eras and the laws that were encoded then are still with us today. And how to intervene there, right? How to actually um, use our awakening and our awareness and our attention to reduce suffering in those zones is tremendously difficult and complicated. And I think a little bit over the heads of a green bodhisattva in terms of their capacity to actually see the problem and address it. I'm hoping if anything, this is what a fourth turning can help sort of bring to the surface is like there's, we have more granularity when it comes to the ways that we can talk about these various problems. And yes, there are versions of oppression um, and discrimination and, you know, sometimes even hatred that exists in every single one of these different perspectival zones. And we have to be super skillful in how we actually call that out, how we name it, and how we go about trying to address these problems in order to liberate that suffering, mm -hmm. which, you know, is, is the type of thing when you're a green social justice warrior, I mean, you know, what's the expression? All you have is a hammer. So everything looks like a nail. I think we see this problem, you know, often the good news there is guys, they're creating exactly the life conditions that integral needs, right. In order to sort of push itself off of so that it can find its voice, um, in the world. So I see all the dysfunctions that we're seeing, um, as really ultimately good news because it's going to call into emergence, something that's more adequate than, um, than what we currently have. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, for me, that's uh, a big aspiration with Buddhist geeks. And it's like, how do we transcend and include the values 
of, the, of these previous altitudes, um, including the pluralistic values, how do we actually um, have a healthy pluralistic values operating in our community? And you know, uh, how do we train teachers and facilitators to be aware, tra trauma informed, and you know, things that are important um, yeah. at that at that band of consciousness? And and I think they rightfully so. But then, how do we? Yeah, how do we transcend the limitations? That sometimes come also with with the enactment of those pluralistic values and um, the over, you know, the, the ways that we overstep, um, the ways that we trying to write just you know right wrongs, we create new wrongs and That's right. all of that. Um, yeah, and I think to me, it's like if I found a community that was like that, um, I would have been drawn to that. I'd have been like, oh wow, this is cool. Like I I need this. Like I want to look at race and I want to look at my conditioning as a male and all these different identities. That pluralistic values kind of harp on i want to see that and decondition some of that that's not you know worth carrying on and that i can let go of but at the same time like i don't want to spend my whole life just thinking about all these different aspects of identity when like waking up is about finding that which transcends and includes all of these different right. identities and which is emerging as you said there's something identity isn't there's something in which our identities are maturing uh they're not they're not fixed yeah and i loved your use of the word pluralism because you know ryan and i a few episodes back several months ago did um i think we called it inhabit your wokeness and we yeah. actually tried to sort of reframe wokeism well we tried to reframe really postmodernism as not only being postmodern, but it's also pre-integral and as such uh -huh. there's a lot of a lot of ideas um and qualities that emerged at the postmodern stage that we continue to carry with us at integral altitudes. Pluralism being, I think, a great example. Pluralism is tremendously important. We become aware of the importance of pluralism, really beginning at the green altitude. And then mm. at integral altitudes, that matures as, well, integral methodological pluralism, for example. So there's a pluralism, but there's also a structure. There's a discernment. There's a discernment of depth and of, of location and proximity and appropriateness and so forth. And this is just an example of one of these ideas that emerged at a particular altitude and then truly blossoms at higher altitudes. And, um, you know, it's one of my biggest problems with a lot of the social justice movement these days is they're not oftentimes very pluralistic at all. I mean, when you actually talk to them about like how many different mm. conflicting opposing views are you capable of sort of holding at once? And, you know, oftentimes the answer is very disappointing. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, we, I do. We, we just had um, Gabriel Wilson um, come to yeah. our uh, teacher. I know he's been on your, on your yeah. show um, on the uh, integral justice show. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, he brought our whole teacher training cohort, the folks that we're training now through the evolving worldviews practice and voice dialogue. And, you know, it's just so helpful to enact those, those developmental models as like practices and see, oh, this is what it's like to be cosmocentric mind or ethnocentric mind. And it was so obvious to me. And every time I do that, that practice, how little attention we're paying to where we become ethnocentric and, um, kind of how that kicks up in our political, you know, tribes. And I know you all have talked about this probably no, but they're, to they're, death, but it's fascinating. See it, see the, you know, parallel conversations occurring in your community. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think just owning our ethnocentrism 
totally. is such a good thing to do right now. It's like, oh yeah, like I, I'm also ethnocentric. Like I, I feel identified with you all and, you know, I don't want to rock the boat sometimes because I don't want to be kicked off and, yeah. you know, and I value loyalty and, um, you know, consistency and coherency. And I don't know, all these things are important to me. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I oftentimes will just not even look at something if it doesn't fit into my, into my space. I'll just ignore it, you know, just, okay, whatever. I'm not going to look into that because I don't want to fuck with my, my current understanding. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think that's that's so helpful to do because right now, like as you're saying, pluralistic communities that have pluralistic values aren't often acting pluralistic. To me, it's like we're often acting more ethnocentric um, mm -hmm. yep. and trying to figure out how to how to bring out these these like these these values that are so much bigger than than our ethnocentric allegiances. Yeah, it, it sometimes feels to me like uh, sort of these green ideas and qualities of tolerance inevitably ran against the wall of the paradox of tolerance, which is that if you want to tolerate right. society, you can't tolerate intolerance. Right. And Carl I Popper. think that green just doesn't know what to do with that. You know what I mean? So it sort of caused a, a very sudden regression, I think, towards, well, less tolerant forms of, of enacting each other. And I think that we've in many ways remained stuck in that place. Um, it, particularly because all of this is taking place on like this flat deconstructive social media ecosystem, mm, you know, where right. all of these perspectives and views and values, they don't, they don't enfold with each other in any meaningful way. Right. They just slide. It's like <laughs> looking at my Reddit feed and I go from like dystopian yeah. nightmare to, you know, a, a cute puppy to like something happening <laughs> in politics so, and it all just slides and you, you feel your brain getting scrambled and trying to move in a thousand directions at once and it's like mm -hmm. jesus this is this is this is the the malaise that we all find ourselves in mm -hmm. and you know so in a certain sense this reaction this regressive kind of pushing against um of of sort of these classic ideas of pluralism it makes a certain kind of sense to me um, even though it's painful to watch because you're watching a lot of people get, you know, really sort of devoured by this. And then people really, I think, you know, uh, begin to conduct themselves in a particular way based on the aspects of their identity that they're really choosing to front load at any given moment. In other words, we've all become walking, talking Facebook profiles, right? Which is why we put so much emphasis on like, here's my pronouns. Here's what I expect you to call me here. You know what I mean? Here's Here's sort of all my labels. It's like we're we're making we're making objects out of many of our own sort of interior subjects, but we're we're keeping them as objects. We're not we're not pulling these pieces of our identity back in. We're just sort of fetishizing them. Uh, I think, in a certain sense, for everyone else, all of which I think informs what a bodhisattva does on a daily basis in order to deliver more compassion more skillfully into the world. I mean, you have to have a sense of like the architecture of the world that we find ourselves in so that we know where to put our efforts, right? And how much skill and how much deliberation uh, to bring to any given project that we find ourselves involved in. We have to know sort of the, the shape of the cultures that we find ourselves in. And I think Integral, you know, helps us make a little bit better sense um, than, you know, some of the narrow perspectives that a lot of us grew up with. Yeah, this, this feels really relevant to me because I feel like when we started Buddhist Geeks and I was working with you at Integral Institute, like the broader culture, like the, the mass of culture was rational mm -hmm. still. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but it seemed that way. And it seems like we've been moving into like the pluralistic wave in a more serious way in the last several years. And in, in the Buddhist world in America um, and globally, you know, there's been a whole reckoning that's happened with that and a transformation. And so like my, I'd say, you know, with Ryan and I, when we teach, like we're mostly working with people who are rational, pluralistic, and probably integral. Um, and a lot of folks are very much dealing with these topics and issues. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, especially us white men are tiptoeing around them and trying not to hurt people's feelings. And, you yeah. know, like we're dealing with it, how, how we deal with it. And it's messy, like it's super messy. And it's like, sometimes I, I wish I could go back to the days of being in the meditation hall where no one talks about politics and mm-hmm. we're all just meditating and silent. Yeah. And, and even though I realize like, you can't, we can't go back there. And it, that's, that's not what I, that's not what, I, how I see Dharma evolving anyway. But there was a simplicity to that of just like, kind of not having to open the box of all those different perspectives and have to contend with them. Yeah. And, and now it's like, oh, we do, we have to contend with them. We have to address them. Uh, we have to know, know the terminology and know the theory mm-hmm. and be able to kind of um, intelligently uh, work with people around these things. And it's, I'd say it's a real challenge. It's a lot harder than just teaching people how to meditate well or how to run a retreat center or you know, the things that my teachers were mostly focused on. Um, yeah. yeah, and I certainly agree that uh, the only way out of this is through. Can't go right. back. I think the only, you know, I, I don't know if I would agree that um, people on average were more rational back then, but the average mode of discourse in our culture certainly was more, I think, modern. Uh, yeah, there you today. go. And, and that's sort of the irony of this is that, you know, all of our media, we shifted from this sort of centralized orange media model, which right. had referees and had, you know, I mean, these the news stories were coming through a perspective, which would, you know, bring some kind of discernment and would say, this is, you know, more worth your attention than that is. And there were flaws yes. with that system too, as well. I mean, clearly, you know, having centralized um, anything I think can be, can be dangerous, but now we've almost overcompensated in the exact opposite direction. So we've created these very, very flat postmodern platforms where there right. are no curators. There is no enfold. There's no mechanisms of enfoldment anywhere to be found. And so we are left to ourselves to curate our own informational terrain. And guess what guys, we're not equipped to do that. We're just not equipped to do that. And so you know, I often I often use the the metaphor. Have you ever seen? Um, <laughs> it's called a spiral of death. It's something that happens to ant colonies when ants when a when a group of ants gets disconnected from the rest of the colony. What they mm. basically start doing is, you know, the way ants communicate is through pheromones. They follow each other's trails of pheromones. So when a when a sort of a subculture of the ant colony gets broken off from the rest of the colony, what they do is they they literally just follow each other around in a circle over and over again, going nowhere until they just die, basically, right? They just grind themselves out, they exhaust themselves and and they die. So that's like the biological equivalent of the wheel of death on the computer. Yeah, I think it's a biological equivalent of like QAnon, right? I mean, I think that this is this is exactly what our postmodern platforms do is they 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 put us into this this mode where we're simply following each other, right? And we've so deconstructed you know, authority, we've deconstructed expertise, we've deconstructed so much of the sort of structures that kept 
our culture, well, understandable, um, approachable in the first place that actually created more shared meaning for more people. We've dissected that into a billion different pieces, a billion different subcultures, all of whom are basically just following themselves around the circle. I mean, we saw this with like pandemic. We saw this with like QAnon. We, we, we see this. This seems to be an ongoing problem that's not just a problem of like human beings and how we conduct ourselves in a vacuum, but it's like, these are the problems that social media itself are bringing to us. There's a new set of challenges that I think we're only just now beginning to become like really, really aware of and how dangerous it actually is um, because nobody knows how to regulate it, right? It's either, we were just talking about this in Integral Life Forum today. It's either like total dystopian misinformation and propaganda on one side or total dystopian top-down authoritative censorship on the other. And nobody knows how to navigate that. Um, all of which is to say what we actually need today more than anything is a new set of super skillful and really super bright bodhisattvas to help forge a new path through this wilderness that we now find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you mentioning the technology piece because, I mean, obviously as Buddhist geeks, that's something we've been mm-hmm. thinking a lot about. And um, I, 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 I rant about this sometimes on Twitter, which is sort of pointless, but I sort of, you know, I get irritated when, mm-hmm. with the flatness of the, of the platform and with the fact that it's like, okay, I've been doing some things for like, I've been doing this stuff for 20 years. And I would say at this point, I'm, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I'm, I'm a very sincere, deep practitioner and teacher. And so w- when I have an en- encounter with someone on Twitter, you know, who thinks they've got the whole thing figured out, you know, and, and they're just, you know, it's like, they're anonymous. They have no credentials. I don't know who they trained with, who they study with. I can't see their face. I don't know what, you know, I don't know literally who know this person is, but everyone's like, treating their comments equivalently to mine and i'm like this is actually doing me a disservice to be on this platform right now um and and i can see how much confusion happens when people start following someone else around because they say a, a, a couple insightful things but like who is this person you know like why should i why should i listen to them why should i boost that signal um yeah i think you're right that this is like a really technological problem as well that we're running into with our social media platforms. Yeah. So Bodhisattvas, please (laughs) recreate. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it, right? Because we really do need um, minds and hearts, minds that are capable of navigating this amount of complexity and hopefully from an integrally informed vantage point, but also an awakened heart that is able to, you know, again, that, that sort of bends itself, that commits itself to, um, not being the smartest person in the room, which is, I think, uh, something we often see in integral circles, just people st- vying to be the smartest person in the room. No, that doesn't matter. Be the most effective person in the room. Be the, you know what I mean? Be the, the kindest, be the person to actually bring the most goodness, however you know how to, with your own unique thumbprint, right? I think every person has a different, you know, sort of piece of this puzzle to bring. Um, and and it's, it's unique to every individual, but fucking bring it. Because this world needs you now more than it's ever needed you before. Um, and it needs both your heart, your enlightened heart, your awakened heart. And it needs this like really, really rich uh, cognitive mind just to be able to see new possibilities in the first place. Recognize the challenges, see new possibilities, 
bring your awakened heart to the problem. And I think if we were able to do that, especially if we can do that as a community, the new possibilities will emerge, new solutions will emerge, and this mm. thing will continue to tick forward. Mm. Nice. I love it. I guess, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of at an hour, so we might be starting to wind down soon, but I guess one question for you guys, um, I'd love to hear your console because, you know, there's a lot of people who are going to be listening to this, who are listening right now on, you know, places like YouTube, uh, and we'll watch afterwards on, on integral life who aren't necessarily in, you know, the Buddhist tradition or even any strong tradition or lineage to begin with. Um, they don't necessarily have, you know, a version of, um, the bodhisattva vow that they would take for themselves. But how do you think, for, what is your counsel in terms of ordinary folks um, who are sort of outside of a tradition to, to do something similar, to find this like deep level of commitment that encourages them to, um, you know, again, not just sort of quarantine themselves from the world through a rigorous practice of meditation and navel gazing, but really you know, uh, devoting ourselves to selfless surface and to the reduction of suffering in the world. What's, what's your advice? Like, what is sort of a micro version of the Bodhisattva vow that anyone can take on, no matter sort of what idiom they're coming from or where they find themselves in life? Well, one thing that came up for me, I mean, just in hearing you all chat yeah, last few minutes, um, I realized like, you know, pretty much, this is a question I use a lot with myself and with students, but that feels relevant is just what is needed. And like with that though, like in, in my life is basically like, if I keep doing something that results in the same suffering or, or, and especially if I think it's supposed to help, but yet it doesn't <laughs> at some point that like deep gut level recognition of like, I got to do something different. And this, and it usually doesn't feel good in a certain sense of like, but I thought this was going to work or I thought this was, this should work. Like being able to admit that, like, this is just me, like my passionate response right now is like being able to just admit that and just say, like, I, I recognize, I, I, I surrender to this truth here that like what I'm doing is not working and I don't know what's next or what should happen, but I'm going to just sit with that question. What is needed? Mm. So like, this is like a special relevant to like, you know, like when we talk about green meme and integral, like for green, it's like the values are so important. The efficacy is questionable to me. That's always it. Values are great. Strategy is questionable. So just say like, if your strategy is not working over and over, then just admit out loud that it's not working, but yet something can happen. I just got to look at this differently. And usually a lot of times for this, it either, either looks to cleaning up or looks to really growing up, like growing up to me often just happens in that way that we just finally die to the fact that how we're looking at the world and engaging with it isn't big enough. And we just finally say, okay, fine. I'm going to figure out how to live into something bigger. And so to me, like, that's, that's, I don't know, it's pretty central for me. And like in the vow, like, of like, what does it look like? Practically speaking, I'm just going to keep asking that question. And I asked that myself, like we're talking about, you know, responding in the integral community to like a pluralist context, for example, I go, I don't know exactly what would be the most effect, uh, efficacious way to respond to help solve those problems together. I don't know. I can identify maybe a problem, but like, what's the, what's the best way for me to respond in my mm. cosmic address? I don't know, but I'm going to sit with that. I'm not just going to be pissed off, you know, because I recognize me being pissed off is one of those things where I'm like, okay, I do get pissed off, you know, but like it's exhausting and it doesn't lead in a result. So I'm like, okay, I give up. So what, what can I do? So what's mm. needed? 
like just force me into like a reorientation and like, but maybe some of that comes with like, you know, development too, of being able to like, see that that happens, you know, like, and it's happened multiple times <laughs> repeatedly in life. And it'll happen again to where it's like maybe a little easier to just accept that. But mm-hmm. I don't know. That's what comes up for me. I love that. You know, Vince, I'll let you respond as well, but I just want to, you know, quickly mention Ryan. It reminds me of the talk we did about um, the integral Ikigai, right? And that as, as oh, sort yeah. of like, here is a way to, um, to generate a, a, a greater sense of life purpose by actually looking at the things that we can do and the things that are valuable to us in all four quadrants, and then finding a path forward that can really sort of harmonize and integrate those, those impulses. And there's a reason why when I talked to Ken about this a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Bodhisattva vow and the integral Ikigai at the same time. I mean, we really sort of was like, it was like one beat and then another beat, right? So there's a vow and an identity a commitment in an identity that you can, that you can find within yourself. And then when it comes to actually expressing that in the world, the, something like the integral Ikigai can help guide that process just in terms of, of, of answering that question of all the things to be done. What is mine to do? Um, and I love how those two, those yeah. two ideas really do kind of, kind of dovetail really, really nice. And I would say like, even to be really radical, maybe this is where like, you know, a path of awakening can be helpful to radically let go of assumptions. Like even in the assumptions of like, Oh, I got this integral map and how to look at the world. Like to even like momentarily let go of that because maybe my enactment of that even isn't really useful. So like, can I just let go completely enough to let some shit move through to like, let a response emerge, like in that question, like to not, you know, just sometimes it's just needed to sit in that like uh, confusion, you know, and to recognize it. Totally. And one other thing that made me think of this, Vince, another tweet, we'll just quote your tweets all day long. Uh, <laughs> Very was, entertaining. Uh, <laughs> Vince said uh, something, he quoted like the, the hippie phrase, all we need is love, you know, that was touted a lot. And, and Vince, you said something like, yeah, and maybe like healthcare and, <laughs> you know, Netflix. Net- yeah. Things like that, like other things that are also needed, like, and you could see like, like in the seventies, if you were to like push back against that idea, you'd be like, dude, what are you an asshole? Like, you know, all you need, like love sounds pretty good, but after a while, it's like, that's not enough. It's like part of it, but like, it's, it's not in and of itself. It feels good, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. Like we have to do more than that. And like, we'll keep seeing that too. It's like, all we need to do is fix the systems. But then we find out that like, yes, and it's not enough actually to realize, to, to fully enact what's behind that. So like, and that's just going to feel like it's going to keep going. Like when, when will that end? Like this idea of like living into something of like, yes, this is a good response. And then realizing shit, <laughs> we were missing something, you know, it's not yeah. embracing enough. So anyways, mm-hmm. Vince. Yeah. So Corey, you were asking if I were going to suggest one thing, like a mini Bodhisattva. Yeah. A little, a little to micro, the folks yeah, listening. Yeah. Micro, micro Bodhisattva. Yeah. The, the first thing that came to mind when you asked that question was uh, for the folks who are listening to this, if you if you don't have a practice, or if you do, either way, um, find a community that you can practice with, or even multiple communities. Um, you know, practice with the Integral Life community. Come to the Buddhist Geeks Network and practice with us. Find, find where, you know, wherever your communities are that you're drawn to. Um, and if you're doing, if you have a practice that you're DIYing, my suggestion would be to do practice with other people in community too, because I think just the very context of a relational practice. It, it highlights the, the Bodhisattva path because mm. it's like suddenly I'm with others and, yeah. and explicitly with others in practice. 
So those kinds of conversations are going to arise and it's just, it's just going to prompt one to be thinking in, in, in terms of relationality rather than just like my experience, my phenomenology. I think that's, that, that just makes a huge difference. And then to kind of, um, go back again to the, like, what is a Bodhisattva? You know, what is it really? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I really like um, Kosho Uchiyama, who is a, a modern Japanese teacher. He said, a bodhisattva is one who sees the world through adult eyes and whose actions are the actions of a true adult. So go, going back to maturity, you know, yeah. um, that that is one of the pieces that is still not talked about much at all in the Buddhist world culture is development, is maturity, is this vertical distinctions of like, However you measure it, there's, we keep growing up after childhood and some of us are more mature than others in certain respects. And like in that, thank you. The, I'll, the, I'll take that compliment. Thank you. you guys. Look <laughs> <at that compliment. laughs> so yeah, that's great. I think a, understanding a Bodhisattva is one who's waking up and growing up together is a really, is a really good, like Ken's vertical and horizontal enlightenment. Yeah. yeah. No, it's beautiful. Thank you. And, and your, your advice spoke right to me because I am, very much a uh, DIY homebrew practice kind of guy. Um, so sure. I, 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 you know, I, I take that very seriously. I take that um, counsel very seriously. Um, well, and I understand, I understand it too. You know, I just want to say that I understand why people DIY because, because so many communities ask stuff of us that's not mm-hmm. appropriate. You know, they ask us to conform to that model and to like, let go of our creative potential and, you know, to me, it's like you find a community that lets you be you and you can interface with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of both. Oh, and that's, that's beautiful. And it's an important point too. And just uh, <laughs> plug our own platform. If people watching this right now, are looking for a community of practitioners. Hey, it just so happens we have an entire integral life practice community on integrallife.com. We have almost daily practices that you guys can check out. They're in all categories of waking up, growing up, cleaning up and showing up. Um, and also, yes, all the resources that Buddhist Geeks makes available, um, highly recommend that as well. Um, I'm, I've been really sort of uh, thankful for the cross-pollination that we've had, both because, you know, Vince, you and I literally worked together, Jesus, like lifetimes ago. Talk about <laughs> talk about a vow that takes you through lifetimes. I mean, 17 like, years ago, buddy. Jesus, man. <laughs> crazy, right. It's, it's crazy. Um, how much history there is there. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I'm feeling much gratitude for this sort of cross pollinization that, you know, you guys have been doing your thing over there. Integral life continues to do its thing over here. We're clearly, um, you know, we're friends and family and in, in some ways partners. And um, I just absolutely love it. I love the connections between us. And before we go, I want to tell just a real quick funny story of my first experience of Vince as a Bodhisattva. Vince, I don't know if you know, do you probably know the story I'm going to tell? Oh, no, no, I don't, please. <laughs> so this was, again, 17 years ago. This is when, um, you know, in, Integral Institute days, we were basically, you know, a staff of like 25 very energetic 20-something kids in a very, very small office together, which means it got raucous, right? It got crazy. It was the type of thing where like, you know, we were sitting in a chair and there were like 10 of us in a chair sitting together and just, it was, you know, this, this, uh, there was a lot of excitement back then, but you know, um, it got crazy. <laughs> and I remember uh, one morning I uh, got out of my bed. And in the middle of the night, I think I had to pee or something. And I stepped on my laptop. It was just on the floor <laughs> next to my bed. And my, and my laptop broke. 
I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, God damn it. I'm just getting this gig with integral. Like I can't lose this because like, I don't have a machine to work with. Right. So I went in the next, next day into work and I was all bummed about it. And Vince, without even batting an eye, you said, you know, I've got a lot extra laptop for you. I'll bring it to you tomorrow. It's like, Oh my God. Oh my, <laughs> this dude's going to give me a, I mean, this is like 2000, you know, what four or so. So it's like laptops weren't these like People weren't just handing out laptops back then. Right? <laughs> That's true. You, right? you, this one was seven. I think my backup was seven pounds. It was a seven pound laptop. No, it was, these so. were the big boys. That's right. These were the big boys. So you brought it in for me the next day. And I was so, I mean, I was just so grateful. I was like, this dude's got my back. I mean, we barely know each other still. And you've got my mm -hmm. back. And, you know, you gave me your laptop. And that morning I'm sitting on the chair, you know, doing a couple of things. I literally just opened up. I, I was playing with a new laptop for about five minutes and <laughs> someone else got out of the chair that I was sitting on the edge of causing the entire chair to flip forward. The laptop falls on the ground and the screen just shatters. <laughs> and I'm just sitting, looking at it, like a tear rolling down my face, looking at the laptop, looking at Vince. I'm like, Oh my God, this dude is going to hate me right now. He just gave me a laptop and I broke it within five minutes. Oh my God. <laughs> Well, I got to tell him what happened. I'm like, Vince, I don't know how to tell you this, man, but like, me is ruined already. And dude, it was like, I don't, maybe in, you know, inside you were raging or rolling your eyes or whatever, but your response was just no. like, no, dude, it's, you know, shit happens. And it was just this, this equanimity that I was not in any way expecting. And um, it, it's funny because almost 20 years later, I still think about it. Oh, cool. About it. So that was, that was my that. first experience of Vince's, not only for, for graciously giving me a gift that allowed me to continue my employment at the company that I freaking love, but also being so gracious when I took your gift and immediately smashed it on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> so, so whose laptop did you break after that? You had to find someone. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. I don't, I don't, I don't actually know where my next laptop was. I don't think anyone like, was, was willing to give you. No, I think. <laughs> I think I probably stole one from Hui or something. I don't, I don't, I don't remember funny. where I got the next one from, but you know, that, so that, that, that memory has always stuck with me. So thank you for being such a, a Brody Sattva to me from the very beginning. <laughs> Absolutely, um, man. And dude, it was so awesome having you on. Uh, I, I love Likewise. hanging out with you. I can't wait to start gaming with you guys again. I know you just, yeah. you just betrayed me by buying Xboxes. I've got a PlayStation, <laughs> but we'll, we'll figure this out. Um, okay. and we'll start, we'll start our, our pwn sessions again. Um, but dude, it's so awesome to have you here and I hope you, you, you come back and join us for another episode very soon. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Ryan, any, uh, any final thoughts, my man? Nope. Let's get phoning. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun guys. Thank you so much for your time and thank you, yeah. uh, at home for watching us. Uh, again, this has been inhabit your vow with our special guest, Vince Horn from Buddhist Geeks, co-founded by uh, Vince and Ryan Olke here. And it was just such a pleasure to talk to you guys. Have an awesome afternoon. It was awesome. Thanks, Corey. All right, guys. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. Peace.